morning and welcome to Rising. I had to halt taping to watch the trailer for the new Legend of Zelda game. I appreciate you putting up with that, Brianna. I always have patience for your, your nerdy frolics and detours, Robbie. They're my favorite thing about you. Oh, well, thank you. All right, what's on the, what's on the docket today? Well, we've got a really excellent show for you today. Uh, a lot of big news yesterday. Senator Lindsey Graham introduced federal legislation that would ban abortion after 15 weeks nationwide, with exceptions only in the case of rape, incest, or if the pregnancy is endangering the life of the mother. Let's watch. Here's what I think. I think we should have a law at the federal level that would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. And what would that mean if we adopted that position? The next chart. Where are the chart people? <laughs> if we adopted my bill, our bill, we would be in the mainstream of most everybody else in the world. The Wall Street Journal is out with new polling on the issue. 60% of voters said abortion should be legal in all or most cases, up from 55% in March. 29% said it should be illegal, except in the cases of rape, incest, and when the woman's life is endangered, compared to 30% in March, where just 6% said it should be illegal in all cases. And more polling shows that the Dobbs ruling has given an incentive for Democrat and independent voters to hit the polls come midterms. 83% of Democrats say they are more likely to vote, while 53% of independents responded similarly. And another poll showed that 62% opposed an abortion ban at six weeks of pregnancy that only included an exception for the health of the mother. And 57% opposed a ban at 15 weeks with the same exception. Meanwhile, 77% opposed banning women from traveling to other states to seek out an abortion. And 81% were against banning all abortions. So it does seem like there is a ratcheting up here. Obviously, you know, currently there's a viability line that most states have respected that sets uh, limitations on getting an abortion at 22 to 24 weeks. Now we're talking about a 15-week ban, which was the um, ob objection, uh, the object rather, of the Dobbs ruling in the first instance. Lindsey Graham points to the fact that in many other countries in the world, there is, including in Europe, countries that we kind of see as peer parallel countries in terms of, you know, democracy and, you know, human rights and things like that do have 15 week bans. But of course, part of the reason why we did have a longer tail in the row hearing, uh, row ruling rather, part of why the justices decided to have a viability line instead of a, a shorter timeline is because unlike in those countries, it's harder for women in America to access health care because we don't have a universal system. Yeah, I don't understand uh, why Lindsey Graham brought this up at all. It mm. seems like if you're looking at the polling, pretty clear that, uh, and the change in, in just Republican fortunes over the last few weeks and months as a result of Dobbs, this is not an issue that voters want uh, to be talked about, uh, or, or rather, that voters, voters don't want abortion restrictions. Um, at the federal level, look, I, I think the 15-week uh, ban and then, you know, further exceptions down the line, it, it, like Graham says, is not a, is not, it's not an extreme policy. It's one other countries do have. Uh, but as I've said on other issues, I, I, you know, I wouldn't put this in the federal government's hands. I would let, you know, states experiment with different, um, different policies and, you know, see which one people like best. It's clear that people don't have 
the level of support uh, that you would want to see for this, you know, universal across the board at the federal level. Like, don't ma- don't don't bring this up. This seems like a very self-inflicted wound to bring this up, and it's right. It's not. By the, if you look at the polling, it's not. Uh, it's not popular enough. It, it has been in the past. You could get close to around a 50% support for something similar to this, Mm -hmm. um, allowing abortion in the first trimester, then having a, you know, cutoff around there with then some leeway later on. Again, I don't think that's an unreasonable policy, but no reason to do it at the federal level. And and it's clear that since the Dobbs ruling, more people who might have previously been for that are saying, oh, wait a minute, I don't like what abortion enforcement actually looks like. What it would look like at the federal level would be even more of a disaster. Yeah, I mean, states' rights, states' rights, where is this gone? And I I wonder about this polling question. So often when we talk about progressive policies, there's a rejoinder that, oh, it's not as popular as it seems. You know, people might say they like Medicare for all, but it depends on how you phrase the question and things like that. I wonder if sometimes when we ask people about whether or not they support abortion bans or would want to overturn Roe, there is this this extent to which they are answering with the belief that it's not actually going to happen. They, mm-hmm. they can kind of symbolically express a kind of conservative value without having to really reckon with the implications of what it would what would happen if they won. And it does feel like the Republicans are in a situation now where they're the dog that caught the car. And it's not just that they don't know what to do with it. They're doubling down on chasing a car that's already kind of bashed them in the face. So Yeah. And, and I get that it was an imp- this was an important public policy win for conservatives. You can't promise your conservative base things and then just not just not give it to them over and over again. That's part of the reason the Republican base got so mad at the GOP establishment for so many years, feeling they, like they were not getting the policies. Social conservatives, in particular, mm. felt like they were getting lip service from the GOP. I can relate. Uh, <laughs> right. You can, and they were getting lip service. They were getting, you know, even and th- them wanting policies that I wouldn't necess- necessarily support. But then the GOP is lying to them, saying, oh, yes, we're on board. We're going to do all these socially conservative things that they were never going to do. So given the opportunity to actually deliver on something, a, a substantial, not a substantial maybe portion of the entire country, but a, a huge majority of, uh, of, of the grassroots activist conservatives, something they have desperately wanted, the thing they want almost the most mm. for decades, you had to give it to them and, and just deal with from a tactical, strategic, party-building standpoint, you had to give them that and just kind of suffer whatever short-term electoral consequences mm. you're going to suffer. Mm. So I, I agree with that, but there's no reason to continue to, to do like what Lindsey Graham is doing mm. here. So at the end of his press conference, a reporter asked him a very tough question about pregnancy complications and shared her own story. Let's watch. Graham, what would you say to somebody like me who found out that their son had an anomaly that would make him compatible life in 16 weeks? I had regular appointments, I did everything I might, and at 16 weeks we found out that our son was likely not yep. live. When he was born, he lived for eight days. Yep. He bled from every orifice of his body, but we were allowed to make that choice for him. You would be robbing that choice from those women? What do you say to someone like well, Here's what I would say. The world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain, and and we're saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions for life of the mother and rape and incest. But uh, well, ma'am, this this there are 55,000 abortions uh, after the 15-week period. And I think we're resolved 
to get America back in line with the rest of the world. And we won't know where America is until we vote, until we debate. And so to my Democratic friends, you're going around calling all of us every name you can think of. We're a bunch of wackos. Your idea is wacko, not ours. Let's vote. Let's vote. Give me a chance to vote on this bill. We'll take her considerations and we'll vote. And I guarantee if we have a debate on the floor of the United States Senate where we can explain what we're doing versus what they would do, we'll do really well with the American people. And over time, God willing, we're going to be like the rest of the world and not like Iran at the federal level when it comes to abortion. We're going nowhere. Thank you very much. Again, I don't think the policy, and I, I'm sure you disagree, but he is right that like, a 15-week kind of cutoff is the norm in some of our peer countries. France, for instance, I think it's a 14-week cutoff. Um, I, I think it is, he is right that that is the sort of moderate policy, the moderate in-between that other countries do. I just would let states experiment with it because I, I prefer... I actually do believe in states' rights, and when the, for contentious public policy questions where there are a, a wide range of opinions, where I myself have unsettled views about the subject, I would leave it to you know more local authorities to enact whatever the you know median will of the actual citizen of that state is. So I think part of the issue is that there is suddenly an interest in what's going on in the other parts of the developed world where they also have more in the terms of social safety supports and a health care system than American women actually have. And again, part of the reason why we have the longer uh, time for people to go and get abortions because the, the Supreme Court justices in the 1970s understood that it took American women longer to get health care because we don't have the same provision. So if there's this interest in modeling the United States after much of the world, Scandinavia, et cetera, I say let's go whole hog. Let's have universal health care. Let's do what America is unique among developed nations and almost all nations in doing and go ahead and sign on to the Universal Direct, uh, Declaration, um, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which we don't sign on to because it requires we guarantee certain things like housing for kids that we won't do in this country as a, as a human right. Moreover, I think that ultimately Graham is going to have to get past the reality that he has a woman in the audience telling him that she, at 16 weeks, doing everything that she was supposed to do with a wanted pregnancy, found out that her child was going to live a life of extreme pain in the short term, bleeding from every orifice, and that his ban would have prevented her from being able to make the choice of whether or not to terminate that pregnancy or not. And he looks her in the eyes and all he can do is repeat this line about not wanting to be Iran. Well, a lot of people would think that uh, articulating a often what is considered often considered to be a religious um, objection to having the right to terminate a pregnancy at an earlier time is imposing your religious uh, views on the country in the way that is similar to Iran, not letting people freely and states make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I can't wait to argue with you in your radar coming up next. Well, so I don't, we don't know if it's an argue one. We can completely uh, agree about student debt. Is it about for the, the Legend of time. Zelda? Oh, it's about student debt. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> More rising right after this. All right, Brianna. What's on your radar? Well. 
looks like the verdict is in. Per Jeff Stein's analysis over at the Washington Post, most of the evidence at this point suggests student debt cancellation has boosted Biden's numbers with young people pretty dramatically. Biden's net approval went from 11 points in the red to 11 points in the black from August to September. Even conservative voters seem to be warming up to the policy. After all, student debt has no partisan bias, and many Republican parents are struggling with the debt owed by their children and their children's partners, not to mention their own debt. Take a look at this. Philip Rosioski voted for Trump twice, doesn't like the direction of the country, but on student loans? Myself, I still have a lot of student loans to take care of for my children. Rosioski says he is not against student loan forgiveness, and we'll see if he or his kids qualify. There has to be some change, and that's what I'm voting for, change. 84-year-old Tom DePew, a moderate Republican and former banker, says debts should be repaid, but views student debt differently. My daughters all went through college. They have student loans. I'd like to see it. It helps them. But despite this praise, does Biden deserve the good poll numbers? Did he advance a student debt plan to boost America's, uh, sorry, to boost Democrats' midterm chances, knowing that it might not actually survive Supreme Court review? Almost immediately after Biden announced his plan to cancel $10,000 of student debt for all debtors making less than $125,000 a year, along with up to $20,000 of debt for qualifying debtors who took out Pell Grants, Republican Congress member Ted Cruz began publicly plotting ways to block student debt relief. The Washington Post reported last week that Senator Cruz had been consulting with a top Supreme Court litigator over how to challenge the policy in court. Now, to sue a potential litigant, the first move uh, is to prove that you have standing. That is, that a claimant has to prove that they were actually harmed by the debt relief policy. Courts have found that it's not enough to simply be a taxpayer. If that were the case, everyone could basically have a claim to challenge anything that happened anywhere in America, no matter how attenuated they were from actual harm. And since student debt cancellation is merely the government who granted federal loans in the first place, foregoing repayment, student loan cancellation isn't actually funded by taxpayer dollars anyway, nor does it come at the expense of any real constituency. So the best case scenario as Cruz sees it is ironically to have a student loan processor like Navient or Great Lakes bring a claim. This is a stunning admission in and of itself. After all of the hand-wringing about how this policy would hurt the working class, from a legal perspective, the only group that even remotely, plausibly is harmed by student debt cancellation are the very predatory banks who have been profiting off of the government's education loans. One of the biggest student debt servicers, Navient, formerly owned by housing baddie Sally Mae, just settled a predatory student loan suit for $1.85 billion earlier this year after it was accused of peddling risky and expensive subprime loans that they knew or should have known were likely to default. The lawsuits reveal that Sally Mae knew the default rate for private student loans was as high as 92%, but it still pushed these doomed loans as a way to build relationships with colleges who would be paid the proceeds of the loans regardless of whether or not the borrower defaulted. Sally Mae could then take advantage of the servicer contracts. 
Navient agreed to cancel $1.7 billion in debt owed by more than 66,000 borrowers and pay over $140 million in other penalties due to its abusive lending practices. Navient told the Washington Post that they, of course, deny all allegations and that the decision to settle was purely economic. Now, those abusive lending practices included misleading borrowers who were having difficulty making payments into entering what are known as long-term forbearances. A forbearance is a pause in payments that lenders can extend if a debtor can't pay and while they regain their ability to make payments. But interest can still accrue during a loan forbearance, causing the average amount paid over the lifetime of a loan to be much, much higher. For example, I went into forbearance for one year uh, when I took on a low-paying federal clerkship after law school, living at home to save money and commuting over an hour and a half to Brooklyn. And that added over $10,000 to my own law school debt in just one year. Now, Navient could have directed students like myself trying to navigate the Byzantine loan process toward income-based repayment plans instead. But they didn't, misleading borrowers and costing them as much as $4 billion in interest and fees, according to the Student Borrower Protection Center. Another student loan company was issued a $1 million fine in March after it, too, misled borrowers about their loan forgiveness options. Students eligible for public loan forgiveness plans because they devoted their lives to public service were instead told by Ed Financial that they were not eligible. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau made it clear that this was in fact breaking the law. This is truly cruel and unusual behavior. Navient even illegally overcharged nearly 78,000 service members. Moreover, these loan servicers became obscenely rich off of this scam. Navient paid more than $4.9 billion to shareholders through dividends and stock buybacks. Its CEO alone profited more than $47 million individually off of students too poor to go to college without taking out debt. And now, Ted Cruz wants to make these criminals the face of his plan to challenge Biden's popular student loan forgiveness program. Literally, the only ones hurt from this policy are the corporate crooks who have been profiting at the expense of American students. And Cruz, for some reason, wants to make them his allies. It's an optics disaster that exposes the interests of corporate conservatives like Cruz for what they really are, Wall Street before Main Street. Progressive Congresswoman Ilhan Omar responded to Cruz, calling him a, quote, miserable little weasel and affirming that student debt cancellation is legally sound. But is she right? about the legal argument part of that, I mean. <laughs> this issue was debated in a Washington Post column last week. Harvard professor Lawrence Tribe affirmed that the White House is on safe legal footing, citing the HEROES Act of 2003 as a legislative hook that grants Biden executive authority to cancel student debt. But the HEROES Act is a post 9-11 law that allows the president to suspend or cancel na uh, debt in a national emergency. Whether or not COVID still qualifies as an ongoing emergency is a hotly debated topic, with conservatives and Biden supporters alike aligning on a desire to put the pandemic behind them, the former due to concerns about CDC overreach and politicization of COVID, and the latter for political reasons. Biden fares better in midterms if he can claim to have resolved the crisis. Of course, we are still technically legally in a declared state of COVID emergency, 
But given how the Supreme Court, the conservative Supreme Court, has ruled on COVID-related policies like mask mandates and the eviction moratorium, some are skeptical that they would uphold an executive order that depends on COVID being characterized as an ongoing crisis. I spoke to law professor Jed Sugarman, who took a skeptical view of Biden's legal standing on the Washington Post article uh, on my own bat, uh, sorry, on my own podcast, uh, Bad Faith, on Monday, and he offered some more clarity. Both on Bad Faith and in a piece he wrote in The Atlantic last week, Sugarman argued that Biden should rely on the Higher Education Act of 1965 instead of the HEROES Act as a hook for his executive authority. Now, the language in the 1965 Act does not rely on COVID and aligns much better with Biden's own justifications for student debt relief, in which he has barely referenced COVID as a cause. The 1965 Act allows the Department of Education to, quote, enforce, pay, compromise, waive, or release any right, title, claim, lien, or demand, however acquired, including any equity or any right of redemption. Now, that language is squarely on point for Biden's debt relief plan. And it's no surprise, the 1965 Act was explicitly intended to resolve the kinds of education crises that predated the pandemic, and which Biden has rightly cited as the reason why a student debt cancellation is needed. So why, some progressives are now asking, would Biden choose a less applicable statute that relies on a justification likely to rankle not only Supreme Court justices who are conservative, but liberal, liberal uh, justices as well, in Jed's view? Well, this is the point at which this conversation tips into some speculation. One cynical argument is that Joe Biden wants to exploit the goodwill of young voters and older voters too, to carry Democrats through midterms, knowing that he'll never have to make good on his promise of partial debt cancellation. Similar arguments were put forward to explain why the Democrats seem to cave to Cori Bush's protests on the Capitol steps to extend the eviction moratorium last summer. Some have opined that the Democrats only bent the knee to Cori Bush because they knew the courts would overturn the eviction moratorium immediately after Bush's so-called win. Is Biden similarly hoping to be able to hide behind the courts? One other theory Professor Sugarman and I discussed on Bad Faith was whether Biden is worried that the authority granted under the Higher Education Act of 1965 is actually too broad for his narrow incrementalist agenda. Sugarman argued that Biden would have a tough time canceling all student debt under the HEROES Act. In fact, Sugarman wonders if Biden might have to narrow the debt relief he's already promised to make it so that it's tailored to those who can prove they were actually affected by COVID. And I want to be clear here that this is by no means confirmed. I also spoke to Sparky Abraham from the Debt Collective, who's been a guest here on Rising, on my Collins show on Monday. And he offered some strong pushback to Sugarman's theories, which people should definitely take with a grain of salt. Uh, Sparky's view is that Biden's policy actually does pass muster under the HEROES Act and won't need to be narrowed at all. But what's clear, even in Sparky's own observation, is that the Higher Education Act of 1965 grants much broader authority to enact much more comprehensive relief. And a very cynical view of Joe Biden might see his choice to use the HEROES rather than the Education Act as a reflection of his unwillingness to open himself up to political pressure to do more. The reality is that Joe Biden, like Ted Cruz, is a huge recipient of Wall Street money, and the loan, servici loan servicing industry excuse me, clearly has an influence in the White House. 
The $10,000 of debt cancellation was their number, the debt servicer's number, a number calculated to get payments going again, while doing little to address the huge amount of interest accruing for students due to the bank's illegal and predatory behavior. We live in an oligarchy where leaders from both parties are undependable advocates for working class or even middle class interests. And the courts, staffed by unelected and unaccountable elites, side more often than not with corporate interests, cultural issues aside. Now, I want to be clear, the first hurdle for a legal challenge to student debt cancellation is proving standing. And it really isn't clear that Ted Cruz and his corporate cronies will successfully make the case that predatory borrowers have standing, especially since borrowers are still intact and profiting during the moratorium. And since their ability to service student loans in the first place is completely contingent on them being engaged by the government to do so, Biden could simply move this processing in-house. And maybe he should. I'll continue to follow this story as it develops, but it's worth noting here that once again, all the interests align with Wall Street and the banks, regardless of party. And it's worth asking why it is that no one is fighting full-throatedly for the people here. Hmm. You know, I was uh, looking at, well, while you were delivering your radar, I was looking at Axios reporting on this story, the Navian story. Look, okay, right. If they're cheating people or scamming people, right, they shouldn't do that. I agree with you. But it is funny to hear Elizabeth Warren describe what this company is doing. If these reports are accurate, they reveal a particularly nefarious and harmful last-ditch tactic by Navian to profiteer off the hardship of borrowers that are finally within grasping distance of obtaining relief from their abusive student loans. And it's a broken student loan system. Let's change the system then. If it's if, if it's truly a, the like the federal government is doing this exact thing, it's, it's, I, she, I she's would, a, yeah. I would love to change the system, and frankly, so would Elizabeth Warren. The you know Elizabeth Warren had a plan to do a much more substantive overhaul of how we finance education in the country. I don't remember. I mean, I didn't work for her campaign, but certainly, obviously, Bernie Sanders has a bill that is introduced into Congress, and people could vote on if they wanted tomorrow to dramatically overhaul our public education financing system and go ahead and it. just make let's public college tuition free. But here's the thing, Elizabeth's not wrong in describing what actually happened. When you have student debt and you graduate and you call them up and you ask about your repayment plans, you are stuck in a Byzantine morass where they are directing you and telling you very explicitly, no, that's not, you, you can't do that. You're not eligible for this. And yes, you're eligible for that. And what was shown and why they had to pay out all of that money in these lawsuits is that even though a lot of students had the option to simply lower their payments based on their income in a way that would cause the total amount of their loan to stay much smaller over time with interest, they intentionally told people that their only options were to go into deferral, which can add, if you have six-figure debt or even if you have five-figure debt, can add thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars to your debt burden, even in a year. That's how I have some. No, I, I know people who started sure with 100 it's tremendously complicated. It's a bad idea. Don't do. I mean, I people should regard like taking on massive debt to go to better or fancier colleges the it's same not way you would. Or the same, colleges. It's it it's is. State, it's it state is school. affordable if you. It's not, you are, Robbie. It, it can be affordable. It, but we know all. I know it, all sorts of people. Not, we've interviewed Robbie. people on the show who have who have made different educational choices. And I got have to college to have to dozens of friends who went to state schools 
that still cost 12,000 plus dollars a year who have debt from those schools because they were poor, Robbie. They're poor. Their parents couldn't afford it. They can't stay at home during vacations because there's not a room for their parents to stay there in. Are other... They're working public service jobs. You can't work a summer and pay for school anymore because you there's no part-time job college, that can pay you, can... you 20,000, 40,000, $60,000, $80,000 a year. Some of, at some of these state schools, you can get your, um, your tuition paid for if you get a scholarship or something like that. Um, or go to a community college, or just don't do it. Are don't you... go into debt to do it. Okay, so as we discussed on this show before, affluent people who went to college love to tell other people that they shouldn't have the same opportunities. For poor people to go to college, apparently they have to be geniuses that get that, that get scholarships, that get academic scholarships. They have to be a superstar sports player that gets a athletic scholarship, or you have to have rich, you know, rich parents, which they obviously don't have. For rich people, all you have to do is have a desire to go to college and get more money and make more money over the course of your career. So why is it that there's a different set of rules for rich people and accessing this thing which they obviously want and obviously rich have people. taken advantage of, but poor people, we just say, oh, well, if you weren't able to jump through all these hoops that I didn't have to jump through, you shouldn't have the same rights and rich privileges people, that I do. Uh, uh, by virtue of being rich, yes, we'll always be able to afford better and different things than other people. No, but, but education I, is a human right, Robbie. And if you don't agree with that, if you don't should, agree with that, then that's fine. But when I we live in a world that. where you have to, we decided in this country that high school education is a human right, because at a certain point, you don't have an ability to compete in a workforce, and you don't have a country that can run and function if you, you don't, don't have the ability to compete in a workforce because we've created a system that makes people go to college in order to be eligible to be a working person. That's, it's a dumb system that has just pushed, out, pushed back in time the age at which you can actually work or participate in the people labor force. People who go to vocational schools have college debt. Some My mother went do. to a vocational high school. She worked her way through college. She had to take For an extra vocation? semester. Oh, she she learned did secretarial practice when mm -hmm. she was in in, in in high school. And apparently, a lot of people believe that that's enough. And her aspirations to have a different kind of life and a different career for herself than being a legal secretary for an entire life was beyond her. And she should have settled and stayed in Cleveland, Ohio, and lived a certain kind of life. Yeah. She took out student loan debt at a time when it was much cheaper. And she still had student loan debt and had student loan debt into adulthood, a very small amount remaining. But it was much cheaper. And you literally could work your way through some college, doing summer jobs, working for a year and saving up. We don't live in that world for reasons that you and I agree are predatory and wrong and should be overhauled from the beginning. But don't sit and tell a group of students who were lectured for the last 20 years that the only thing that you could do to be successful in life and avoid being poor is to go to college and then do a bait and switch and say that we're not going to be as mad at these predatory organizations, which Ted Cruz now wants to ally with, you know, to block reform. Washington, D.C. requires you, has tried to require, it, it's been blocked in court, but has tried to require uh, people who want to be daycare, childcare professionals, require them to get teaching, require them to get education degrees. They're forcing them to go to college. There's no, you don't need an education degree do you to need watch a, children. Do people have to go to college to be a doctor? Oh my, that's so ridiculous. That's absurd. Yeah, to be a doctor, yes. Not to watch people's kids. That's dumb. Okay, so we shouldn't have to go to college to watch people's kids. Should poor people be allowed to be doctors? Should poor people have an opportunity to be doctors, Robbie? Yes, they can. College should be 
should be affordable, and I support lowering tuition rates okay, so if, for people. If you but, want, if but you want doctors, it is, to have, there's a credentialing system that has forced everyone to buy into this entire scam my, that needs to be dismantled, I, I, I and agree. that is the problem. Agree, the problem Robbie. is not people need to pay back the I things agree, they agreed I to agree pay. I agree that that exists, but taking marginal cases on the borders that have nothing to do with the overwhelming crisis, where poor people, most jobs that require credentialing do need credentialing. Probably there's too much credentialing in the doc I, medical field. I, I think that that's uh, true too. It could believe. be shorter and cheaper for sure. But sitting here and pretending like it's these marginal cases that are the cause of the structural issue does nothing but give people an excuse to do nothing to actually change the system. It blames individuals instead of blaming systems and the people who are exploiting folks. So I would like to see a lot of anger directed at Navient and predatory lenders and the people who set up this cockamamie system and not at individuals who sometimes make bad decisions, but shouldn't well, be abandoned by the government as a consequence. Okay. We should direct it at the Navi type companies that are engaged in fraud and scam and our legislators on both sides of the political aisle who refuse to fix this problem. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, I agree. All right, okay. we got there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we, pro we were, it was promised to be a, a heated, contentious one, and we got there. So more rising after this. Three major credit card companies announced they will start categorizing sales at gun shops, a move hailed by gun control advocates all across the country. Visa, MasterCard, and American Express's decision is seen by many who want stricter gun control as a way to prevent mass shootings because it would be a way to track potential suspicious firearm purchases. New York City Comptroller Brad Lander applauded the move, pointing out that other purchases are categorized, so gun sales should be no different. Take a listen. All this time, even though there's been a merchant category code uh, for bike shops and nail salons and barber shops, uh, the International Standards Organization has not yet created and the credit card companies have not yet begun to use something as simple as a merchant category code for standalone gun shops. Meanwhile, gun rights advocates are infuriated, saying that categorizing gun sales is futile given that most do not lead to mass shootings. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley called the move a big threat to Second Amendment rights, tweeting, I want to know from the corporations why they capitulated to the anti-Second Amendment lobby. So this is an interesting um, uh, policy, actually. I, I have a lot of feelings about it, but what are, what are your feelings? Yeah, it seems like there, the discussion here isn't quite pinning down on the no. issue. The issue isn't whether or not the banks have a code for something. It's the extent to which the banks are disclosing to law enforcement people's purchasing behavior and at what point a gun sale would trigger that flag for law enforcement. And then also what law enforcement then does with that information, because you could obviously see this could be a pretext for all kinds of abuses and surveillance that are inappropriate if it's not narrowly tailored. Well, and also if, there, if the flag is like, oh, look, this person just bought so many guns, mm -hmm. we should let law enforcement know. It, I, my sense is that people who buy a lot of guns are not, act, I mean, they're not the ones who are perpetrating ma the mass shootings. They're like gun enthusiasts who, well, like, don't, who use yeah, them legally. I mean, it's not, yeah. we don't have people like stockpiling guns and like armed militias roaming the streets. Well, yes, we have, no. we I, have. I think it's a little bit of a timing issue. So in this NPR article about the subject, it points out that a week before the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, where 49 people died after a shooter, shooter opened fire in 2006, the assailant used credit cards to buy more than $26,000 worth of guns and ammunition. Um, so buying a lot of guns at once, I would argue, is probably, probably suspicious behavior, you know. <laughs> but... Well, I mean, 
I mean, 99.999% of people, right, buying a lot of guns at once are not doing it because they're planning some I don't know about that. Probably. They're gun enthusiasts. I don't think that 99% of people who buy $26,000 worth of guns in a weekend or what have you I don't know how much well, the, how the, often that happens. The recent the recent mass shootings, Uvalde, uh, Buffalo, those people they they had some had some powerful weapons to be clear, but they didn't have stockpiles of you know they didn't have a vault of like tons and tons and tons of guns. Sure, they had they had powerful guns, but. Um, but not you know that I, their purchases wouldn't have you know even if there was a separate code for it I don't think anyone would have batted an eyelash at it. yeah so that's the thing the code they, doesn't right, they and they don't know that kid's history they don't know that you know the right, his credit shooter. card is even being used or, and wasn't his I think his dad bought him the gun or something yeah I, mean, I think all for that. his mom it's, or his birthday or something like that yeah please so, stop doing so that so look I, I don't think <laughs> don't that buy it, your your lonely alienated teacher a weapon right of course day. but I, I don't uh, I don't think that the argument that says it wouldn't stop all shootings is necessarily a good one. I do think at a certain point you have to weigh the cost benefit of having a policy that's invasive or breaches people's rights in various ways against the likelihood that it's going to actually change outcomes. But when you do have a very significant mass shooting, like what happened at the Pulse nightclub, you know, I think that probably it's a good thing for someone to have an eye on $26,000 mm -hmm. worth of purchases. Whether it should be because their credit card companies are reporting as opposed to, um, you know, gun sellers having to have certain re reporting requirements. And I understand that this is an end run around the fact that it's difficult to In the poll shooting, if they'd, if they'd known and they told the government, the government might have actually done something because it was a Muslim. <laughs> they were like, oh, yeah, check that guy out. No, I mean, I'm kidding, but I'm not. It, it's uh, and, and so many times we've, for various reasons, FBI or, or law enforcement has known about the shooter prior. So th this would be another, uh, this could be just like all of those cases where they go, where the Visa or MasterCard says, well, there might be something to this, look at this, and law enforcement doesn't do anything, just like they didn't do anything uh, in the numerous times that, uh, that uh, in Parkland, the officials were alerted over and over again, including the FBI. They were told, he has weapons, he has threatened to kill himself and other people. Yeah. They didn't do anything. Yeah, I agree. And, so that were, and that's just the mass shootings, I mean, which is not, again, to be clear, is the vast majority of shootings are not mass shootings, they're gun suicides or you know, gun homicides, domestic violence, crime, crime yeah. etc. It's you know, smaller, you know, not storming a school with an assault rifle. And those guns are purchased in very small numbers, or they're they're not even they're somebody get buys one and then they end up in somebody else's hands. I mean, they're they're sure. guns on the streets that are not. Mm -hmm. They're not being wielded by the person who bought them from a store who shows up on the MasterCard charge. Yeah. So what I do think here is concerning is the kind of civil liberties implications of credit card companies joining up with law enforcement to disclose information in the same way that we talk about in the kind of the Facebook social media context. That's a good point. You know, fine. You know, I understand that there may be in some instances a relationship with law enforcement. You know, if, if some murder happened in my front yard and my, my Amazon camera captured it, don't I want to help the families? Yes. But like, where is the line there between kind of passively participating in a surveillance state and actually doing things that are in the best interest of our community at large? It's not clear to me. Um, first blush that this policy, which basically creates a relationship between credit card companies, which see you buying all sorts of things. You know, if abortion is right. federally caused, made to be illegal, are people going to start, are credit card companies going to start disclosing, you know, whether or not you've, you know, paid for your pill copay, whether or not you have bought a pregnancy test, whether or not you stopped buying, you know, menstrual products or whatever it is. And you can understand the implications of this going, going yeah, around. I'm, I'm glad you brought up 
up the yeah the Facebook and abortion. Uh, th there was that one case that mm -hmm. we covered on the show. This actually reminds me a little bit because of the involvement of credit card companies of the changes to um, to Pornhub, mm. which came as a result of well, so there was that New York Times expose and Nicholas Kristof, I think, about how there's so much underage and non-consexual pornography. I mean, mm. not tons and tons of it, but there, it, it does exist mm. on uh, Pornhub. And the credit card companies um, st said they would stop it doing business with Pornhub. You wouldn't mm. be able to use uh, whatever the money changing service for whatever I don't know kind of premium <laughs> thing you can pay for there they said content. they wouldn't do it so then yeah. Pornhub in response changed some of its policies so that you can't you wouldn't be able to just like upload it will because that was the issue like anyone could just post a pornographic video and what if it was like what if they didn't have permission yeah. what if it was underage so they changed that policy in response to pressure apart from the credit card companies yeah. so it, you well, can see how they can do good, and, and the government didn't have to do anything. And that would have been very thorny because of the liability protections for internet company or for internet platforms. So that was a case of just like all private individuals doing the right thing for business reasons. Sure. Look, I'll say this: I understand why there is this effort to do an in run around legislation because Congress is gridlocked, and even things that are very very popular like. Uh, common sense gun reform, uh, basic background checks can't th get through Congress because of the lobbying of the NRA and the intransigence of many conservatives in, in Congress who see this as a cultural issue that they cannot bend the knee on, even if their actual constituents want them to. But I do think it's a dangerous place where we're that that we're now in a place where we're trying to get corporations, courts, et cetera, to do what legislatures won't. And ultimately, it's a it's creating a more attenuated relationship between people and what happens in our country and undermines democracy for us to be overly reliant on the idea that like Visa is going to be a good faith actor that protects right. our interests. No. So. Well, we'll have more rising as always right after this. In June of this year, San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Budin was recalled, which was a major blow to criminal uh, justice reform advocates and abolitionists alike. Our next guest, Ben Spielberg, co-founder of 34 Justice and Leighton Woodhouse, journalist and documentarist, join us to discuss what happened in San Francisco. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us. So I wanted to talk to you both on this show, in part because you were engaged in what I thought was one of the more productive and respectful conversations that have been happening online and which have been happening in, I think, increasing volume, even within the left. So I'll start with you, Leighton. What, in your view, is the problem here? Where has the left gone wrong from your perspective in its advocacy for certain kinds of criminal justice reform initiatives? Well, in San Francisco specifically, I think everybody knows by now that there's a massive homeless problem and that's connected to um, a huge crime problem. That crime problem is um, open drug dealing in the Tenderloin neighborhood, which is sort of um, San Francisco's equivalent of a skid row, um, which is a 30 square block area downtown, which is in just an open drug market. There are hundreds at any given time of drug dealers on the street openly selling meth, fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, whatever else you need, um, whatever else you can think of. And there's a massive uh, a street addict population um, who are people who are suffering, um, suffering acutely. Um, you walk through the Tenderloin and there's no denying it. Um, and I think where the left has gone wrong is by seeing this as principally 
a um, housing issue, an issue of housing prices. Now, there is a housing crisis in California and in the Bay Area in particular. Housing costs are out of control, but the people who are living on the streets in tents, that is not their problem. It's certainly not their main problem. Um, even if rents were affordable, these are folks who are acutely addicted to very hard drugs, um, and they are forced to live on the street because they can't live more than a couple of blocks from, they can't stay more than a couple of blocks from a dealer because once they get dope sick, they need to be able to get drugs within, you know, five minutes. Um, and so that's the main problem, and that's in, and the San Francisco's response has been to just allow the, the open-air drug scene to continue and allow dealers to just continue to deal drugs with impunity, and it is um, the opposite of compassion. Ben, what, what do you think that analysis gets right or wrong? Well, so I think there's a couple problems with it. I mean, I think the first problem is when you think of an issue like homelessness, that is a problem that is by definition a problem of economic circumstances, not a problem of uh, something else uh, like drug use. Now, that's not to say that there aren't uh, homeless people who deal with drug use issues. There certainly are. Um, drug use is more prevalent among people who are homeless than it is among the general population. But that problem is first and foremost a problem of people not having housing. It's an economic problem. Um, and so I think when you think about the biggest safety issues that people face, one of the most important things to remember is that those are largely rooted in economic circumstances. When you look at any major city, there's massive issues of poverty and inequality in the United States that are largely rooted in people not having enough money to get by. Um, that are not really uh, a product of, of other sorts of policies and issues. I think the second issue that's a real problem is when we think about public safety and crime in the United States, and when people talk about progressive prosecutors, there's a tendency to focus on certain highly salient crimes that, uh, that are street-level crimes um, or that pertain to uh, very uh, sensationalist coverage of violent crime rather than the much broader landscape of crime and how the criminal legal system in the United States tends to, one, be extremely inhumane, um, and two, uh, target largely poor, largely black people in the United States while letting people who are rich and powerful, who often have much more harmful behaviors to society, get off with impunity. So I think when you think about the vision for a progressive prosecutor, the thing that you've got to keep in mind is a progressive prosecutor is never saying we shouldn't prosecute the, uh, some of the types of crimes that have existed in the past. They say that we should redress some of the harms caused by the way that we've prosecuted those crimes and incarcerated a lot of people in this country. And then we should also kind of rebalance the way we approach the criminal legal system such that we're focusing more on the, the types of crimes committed by the powerful that are more likely to cause problems for large numbers of people than the crimes that have typically been focused on, which tend to target people, again, who are struggling with their economic circumstances. So I suspect that Leighton wouldn't object to the idea that, uh, you know, elite financial crimes should be prosecuted more and with the same uh, rigorousness that low-income crimes are prosecuted, and that, in fact, some portion of um, criminalization of uh, kind of the certain kinds of crimes, turnstile jumping, vagrancy, things that actually don't cause a lot of harm to the public are over prosecuted. But what I'm struck by is that while I suspect there's a lot of agreement here, the, the catching point seems to be a sort of an order of operations issue. Ben, you really stress the idea that this is first 
a housing issue as opposed to an issue with addiction. And I wonder if we get rid of the idea of first or second, because what is, is dictating a lot of these interventions is what's available. And I think that the frustration that some leftists have is if we don't have a solution to resolve the housing issue, and frankly, we don't have much of a solution to resolve the addiction issue, why are we trying to say that it's an all or nothing approach in terms of how we approach this, instead of saying that obviously we need to build more housing and make more low-income housing available at the same time that we want to make sure that people who need to get into rehabilitation services have those services developed as well. Is, is, there, is there an issue with having that kind of approach that's a both and, Ben? No, and I, I actually think that that is typically what is recommended for solutions to the homelessness problem. Um, generally, the, the housing first approach is you make sure that people have stable housing, but you also make sure that things like treatment services are available for people who are struggling with substance abuse. Though I think the interesting thing pertaining to this conversation is the district attorney does not have a huge impact on the issue of homelessness. And so one of the things I think, again, where Leighton and I have um, been engaged in debate and talking past each other to some extent is I would say that when you're talking about the issue of homelessness, that issue only concerns the district attorney so much as the district attorney is going to prosecute crimes that are associated with homelessness and that target people who are homeless. So one of the things that Chase Boudin ran on was a promise to stop prosecuting those crimes, which have historically been prosecuted in San Francisco and in other cities around the United States. So public camping, for example, is something that is illegal on the books. Chase Boudin said, I'm not going to I'm not going to prosecute people for crimes like public camping. I think that that's unequivocally a good thing, because when you prosecute people for things like public camping, what you do is you cause them to interact with the police in scenarios that often involve them having to pick up and move where they are. They don't have anywhere to go. Um, they often get embroiled in the criminal legal system as a result of that, which further deteriorates their circumstances. So what I would say is when you're talking about the district attorney and homelessness, the primary thing that you're hoping the district attorney is going to do is not prosecute in the way that people who are homeless have been prosecuted many times in the past. I think the district attorney's purview actually pertains to much a, a much different set of issues, I think, than Leighton does. Now, Leighton, I too, you know, like many supporters of criminal justice reform, it's not, I, I have no great desire to, to cause the homeless, the mentally ill, people suffering drug addiction on the streets to have more interactions with the police. I, you know, absolutely understand and accept why that is bad and that's, you know, not necessarily helpful for anyone. But if it's just, I, I suspect, and maybe this is how you feel too, that then it just defaults to, well, if nothing's being done, it's, it's not that the police are the, are the best option or maybe should even be an option in the conversation, but something needs to be done. It's not, it's not acceptable to just leave them in this condition. That's not, that's like, that doesn't seem like the humane option either. If it, maybe sticking the police on them isn't the humane option, but just leaving them as they are isn't humane either. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, well, the, the question about sticking the police on the homeless is somewhat of a straw man because really nobody is calling for that. Um, you know, you, when I um, spoke before, I, I spoke about prosecuting drug dealers, not drug users. Um, and that is has been the focus of my concern. Um, I, and that has been what the, the former DA was not doing. Um, and uh, and so the, I want to also return to Ben's point about homelessness being an economic um, issue. I don't see how you can say so um, universally that uh, homelessness, by definition, is an economic issue. I mean, the, the reality is that a lot of the homeless people, I, I, I don't even like to use the term homelessness because it's misleading. A lot of the homeless folks in the Tenderloin 
actually have homes. Um, I speak to the parents of a lot of these addicts in the Tenderloin every single day. Um, I've interviewed dozens of parents who have um, bedrooms waiting for their kids who are addicted on the street, sleeping in doorways, sleeping in tents in the Tenderloin. They have a home to go home to. Um, I, there's there's a, a, a friend of mine named Tom Wolf is a recovering addict. He owned a home, paid a mortgage in Daly City, and yet was sleeping on the street in the Tenderloin. Why? Because he could not be more than a few minutes away from a dealer when he got dope sick. So the, the, the argument that homelessness, what we call homelessness, which is people sleeping in doorways, sleeping on tents on the sidewalk, is by definition an economic issue, is just contradicted by the facts. It's just flatly untrue. But Landon, what do you do with that? So there's a young person, and again, I don't know what percentage of people who are homeless in San Francisco are in fact youth. But let's say there's a significant population of homeless youths, teens that could go back home to their parents' house but don't want to because they're drug addicted. What is the affirmative solution to that? Because when we've discussed this on the show before, what's come out is that there aren't enough, there isn't enough support in terms of rehabilitation opportunities for people. And that the reason that the police are um, involved so frequently in these situations because folks do have the sentiment that Robbie just expressed that someone has to do something. And since we don't fund social supports, we don't fund housing, we do fund cops with a lot of these cities having a third or half of their city budgets dedicated to the police force, the police end up being naturally to fill the void the people that end up engaging with the folks. So what's your alternative proposition here? Yeah, well, this is a place where Ben and I both agree on some things and disagree on others. Um, first, first of all, I think that what people who are addicted need is, is treatment, um, and they need um, treatment that is directed towards recovery. So as opposed to what San Francisco does now, which is what I call addiction maintenance, where they do harm reduction, they give you needle exchange, they give you clean foils, um, which makes no sense at all, um, give you uh, spaces where you can use drugs um, and where there are people on hand to give you Narcan if you overdose. But there is no push towards people going into recovery. I think uh, Ben and I probably aren't that far apart on on um, on the question of the need for much more recovery services like right now. You know, you, in order to um, get recovery, first of all, you have to be on methadone, and the methadone clinics are so understaffed that they're only open like two hours a day. Then you have to be on a three-week wait list to get a bed at least to get into recovery. That's totally unrealistic for somebody who's in the throes of addiction. Um, however, where we so there, there's a need for many more detox beds, many more recovery beds. Um, the place where I think Ben and I differ profoundly is that I believe that um, there should be a rules and an infrastructure to make that treatment mandatory, to make it mandatory to go into recovery if you are a drug addict and you are committing crimes. So not for drug addicts who are just using drugs in the privacy of their own home, which technically is a crime, but nobody really regards it that as a, as a serious crime. But if you are shoplifting, breaking into cars in order to support your habit, you go. we need to enforce our laws. You go to court and you have a choice as to whether to go to um, prison and kick there, um, which is very unpleasant, um, or go into uh, a recovery setting where you can get on methadone, you can even get on heroin-assisted treatment, you can you you can taper off of your drugs, but that but that is not a choice. Like, but your your choice is one or the other. You can no longer continue to just live on the streets openly doing drugs. And in my opinion, that is the compassionate solution because. Then first of all, we don't have the infrastructure to do that right now, so we could not snap our fingers and make that happen. We would mm -hmm. have to build out all the, uh, the, 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 the agency and sort of the centers to be able to have that recovery available. Um, but 
addiction is not a choice. It's not something that you just choose to do. When you're in the throes of addiction, you have no choices. Your only choice is to continue to use drugs. So coercion, while it sounds unpleasant and it sounds like an unhappy solution, is what is necessary to free you from your chemical enslavement. Um, to pretend that just letting you continue to do drugs is giving you some sort of autonomy and free will and dignity, in my opinion, that's an illusion and it is uh, the opposite of compassion. Yeah. Uh Ben, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, so I just want to address two things briefly. So one is that when it comes to kind of determining what the the cause of homelessness is, I think you can always find a handful of stories that will be edge cases. But when you look at the broad body of research and then you look at the core problem, it's generally one of people not having homes. So I do think that that's important to keep in mind just for the vast majority of people in that situation. It's an economics problem. The second piece is on the prosecution of people dealing drugs. Um, that is actually something that the district attorney's office, Chase Boudin's office, did do. They just did it in a different way than your typical district attorney would do. Um, so they would plea out some of the cases. They would take individual circumstances into account. They would pursue more of a diversionary approach, which I tend to think is a more productive approach to crime. And I would say that takes us back to the broader point that I think I'm trying to make in this exchange, which is that when you look at what you want a progressive district attorney to accomplish. You want them to look at a criminal legal system that typically uses excessively harsh penalties and an inhumane incarceration system and try to find alternatives to that such that you're not only destroying the lives of people that you lock up, but also destroying the lives of their families and destroying whole communities. And I think the promise of a progressive prosecutor and why it's sad that Chase Boudin got recalled is because he was attempting to do that. And he had also started initiatives to overturn wrongful convictions, to go against economic crimes that are committed against people. So I just think it's really important to highlight that when you're looking at a progressive district attorney, you're looking at a vision that encompasses quite a bit more than just, for example, the drug trade. And you really want to keep in mind what are the problems with the criminal legal system and what do we actually want to address here? Well, we have to leave it there. Ben Layton, thank you to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. And we'll have more rising for you after this. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the new GQ cover star. Titled AOC's Fight for the Future, Inside the Issue, the New York uh, representative opens up about rumors she could run for president in 2024 or 2028. Quote, I hold two contradictory things at the same time. One is just the relentless belief that anything is possible, but at the same time, my experience here has given me a front row seat to how deeply and unconsciously, as well as consciously, so many people in this country hate women, and they hate women of color. People ask me questions about the future, and realistically, I can't even tell you if I'm going to be alive in September, and that weighs very heavily on me. And it's not just the right wing, misogyny transcends political ideology, left, right, center. This grip of patriarchy affects all of us, not just women, men, as I mentioned before, but also ideologically, there's an extraordinary lack of self-awareness in so many places. And so those are two very conflicting things. I admit, I, I admit to sometimes believing that I live in a country that would never let that happen. Hmm. Joining us now to weigh in is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome to Rising. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on. 
Yeah, great to have you here. So, AOC for president, what are your thoughts? I would not vote for AOC for president. And it's it's not so much about, uh, I would say, her political ideology, because I came out of the Bernie Sanders movement. I heavily supported AOC when she ran uh, the first time. My issue with AOC is I feel like she wants to be more of a celebrity and less of a politician. I would really like to see her organize with people on the ground. I feel like she has a large following. We could use that support, those of us who are organizing on the ground. And what I've seen from her, it seems like she just wants to go along with what the corporate Democrats in D.C. want. She's going along with people like Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we saw the switch from when she first entered Congress and she was protesting outside of Nancy Pelosi's office. And then she went from that to calling Pelosi mama bear. So it's very clear to me, I think she wants to be a career politician, which is what she said that she would actually go against. When she first started running, she said she didn't care if she was a one-term congressperson. And obviously, I don't think that's true today. So I think that the problem that I have with AOC is I don't feel like she's actually fighting for these progressive issues the way that she said that she would. And I feel like she's starting to use identity politics as an excuse for people not to support her if she were to run for president. So I think that's such an important point that so many leftists, and this might not be common knowledge outside of you know leftist circles, are frustrated with AOC because they believed in her so much in the beginning because she demonstrated some willingness to engage in the sorts of adversarial politics that she was elected to pursue. You know, the Justice Democrats who ran all of these progressive candidates, many of which were successful, AOC the most successful among them, were explicitly supposed to be highlighting the contrast between what the people wanted and what the Democratic Party would deliver, and folks have felt over time, I think you very accurately described, um, how they felt that like she has increasingly fallen in line. I mean, what do you make of her choice to kind of ascribe criticism of her kind of solely to misogyny or these other kinds of um, uh, external biases as opposed to her behavior in Congress? I think some of this, there's there's some truth to this, to the point that, yes, uh, is there misogyny in this country? Absolutely. But I think she's not looking at the big picture here. If we were to look back at the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton received the majority of votes. So the majority of American voters voted for the female candidate. If we want to bring the, the color aspect into this as well, Barack Obama won two election cycles in a row. So I think if we did not have those examples to point to, I think maybe she would have some type of a point here, but I, I would point to someone in reference to a woman of color as someone like Michelle Obama. If Michelle Obama were to to run, I believe that she would win. And I'm, I'm not a fan of, 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 of Obama or Michelle Obama, but I believe that she would actually win. So I think that AOC needs to look at some of the things that she's done and realize there's a reason why people are particularly criticizing her. Uh, I wish she put more of her time fighting for people in her district, and I've spoken to them, and she's not fighting for them. I wish she put more of her time and focus into doing some of these actions on the ground, which she said that she would do, instead of spending most of her time being a career politician and a celebrity.
Yeah, I'm not on the left, but even I can see examples where Democratic candidates or progressive candidates who don't succeed, like Elizabeth Warren, very much turning to the reason I didn't get it or the reason that you know more people were still favorable to Bernie instead of me was for reasons of sexism and misogyny and so on. And yeah, AOC used a lot of strong language in this interview. So the comment about you know not being certain that she was going to be alive, she's in the article. Uh, she says she wasn't talking about her own her marriage she, uh, to a white man. She wasn't positive that an intercultural, interracial relationship would be the right uh, fit for her. I, I mean, that, that's, uh, it's, I think, generally considered to be a good thing that uh, support for interracial marriage rising, but not necessarily among AOC. Um, it, it is really, uh, it, like you said, a, a heavy identity politics language. Yes, I agree. I think that she may not realize she's making herself come across like a victim. And I felt like that that interview with GQ, it was depressing. That's not inspiring. Mm. That's not what young people want to hear. The people who supported AOC, especially people who donated a lot of money to AOC, they don't want to hear those things. And we're not saying that you can't talk about the challenges I think that you are facing, like as a progressive in D.C. We're not saying you can't talk about that. But look, I'm in an interracial relationship. Yeah, there are challenges that come across with that. Deal with it. Like, I'm sorry, but you can't just blame everything that's that's happening to you, every bad thing that's happening to you on identity politics. So I think that if AOC wants to run for president, I think that she first has to be able to handle these situations that she's going through now. And I don't feel like she's doing a good job at doing that. And she's going to have even more pressure if you run for president. Tabby, do you think that AOC could win despite the skepticism that exists in, I would say, about half of the left at this point? And if not, do you think it's still possible for her to rehabilitate herself at this point? I think in order for her to win, she would have to do one or two things. She would either have to pander more so to the corporate Democrats. She would have to win over liberals. And I say that because some of us have, as leftists have left this. We've left the Bernie movement. Mm -hmm. We're done with the two-party system. So good luck getting us on board. And I think the other option is, yeah, she could redeem herself, but I think that that would hurt her position in D.C. right now. That's the problem she's going to run into. Everyone who has been there who has really tried, I think, to push back, a uh, perfect example is Cynthia McKinney, they have pushed them out. They're not going to let politicians stay there that actually are going to fight for the people and push back against the, the corporate Democrats. They're not going to let the anti-war voices really stay there in that party either. So that's what she's going to run into. So the question she has to ask herself, does she really want to fight or does she want to be a career politician? Yeah, and you bringing up the anti-war point is, is so apt because this is someone who, on paper at least, is like a progressive, is a progressive anti-war Democrat being interviewed for, you know, a major uh, magazine with the, that has an audience that maybe is, you know, across the board and, and maybe not explicitly progressive, but liberal. Talk to them about the Ukraine war. Talk to them, about, you know, this is a time to say something about how, you know, wrong this is and how there should be different policy. And, of course, it's silence and it generally has been from even, even the supposedly left members of, uh, of Congress on this issue. Not, not universally silenced, but I think not, not nearly as much talking about it as uh, those of us who oppose what's going on would like to see. So anyway, thank you so much, uh, Sabrina, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we'll have more Rising in just a minute. 
Pressure mounts on freight railroads and the unions representing them to settle their contract before a looming strike on Friday. According to News Nation, the coalition negotiating on behalf of major freight railroads, such as Burlington Northern and Santa Fe Railway, or BNSF, announced eight of the tentative agreements needed to avert a strike. Deals mentioned so far closely follow the Presidential Emergency Board's recommendations, calling for 24% raises over five years, $5,000 in bonuses, and one additional day of paid leave a year. However, the two biggest unions representing conductors and engineers have refrained from joining because they want to see concerns about strict attendance policies and working conditions addressed. Hope these things are addressed, obviously, because a rail strike would, I presume, be just catastrophic to an already suffering economy to the supply chain to all sorts of those things. Yeah, well, so this is the whole point of a labor strike, that employers obviously can coerce employees to do any number of things, to take low wages, to have, um, you know, unfair labor practices because people need to eat. People need to keep a roof over their head. And the only ways that employers can push back is to collectively bargain and make demands uh, as they have done here. Now, they are relying on the fact that there are economic consequences to their strike. That's the whole point of striking. So, for example, uh, this isn't just about passenger trains. This could derail, this is per the Washington Post, critical deliveries of chlorine to wastewater treatment plants and coal to utility plants, among other potentially crippling disruptions, um, including, you know, disruptions to the nation's drinking water supply. So, it's a huge problem based right? on what we've been covering this week. So it's worth asking what these people are asking for. And it seems like the central uh, hangup here has to do with this vacation day policy, where they're given um, very little in terms of vacation days. They don't have weekends off and they can be asked to work 14 days straight and any additional time they take off uh, outside of their very narrow limited vacation times are docked uh, in, the, in a point system from their You're careers. You're saying these workers, they work with, with well, they, they get a break after 14 days. They work every weekend. They just have 14-day... Yeah, they don't have, like, apparently a same kind of a weekend set schedule. So if you count up all of the weekend days that you and I have off, it's like, you know, right. 100 days out of the year or something like that, or just maybe shy of that. On top of holidays and sick date, two weeks sick leave and all these other kinds of things. And these railroad employees, I think because of the nature of the business and how right. tight scheduling is and those kinds of things, they simply don't have any flexibility within their schedule. And this is something apparently that the management has been very reluctant to move on. And so a lot of workers have been interviewed. People like Max Alvarez, who's a frequent guest of this show, have talked to workers about how, you know, you, they want you to also plan it a lot in advance. You can't plan when you're going to be sick. You can't plan when a baby's going to be born. You can't plan when a wedding is going to happen at the beginning of a year. You have no idea what's going to come up. And the complete and total inflexibility has caused a significant deterioration in quality of life. Mm. Well, as you said, editor-in-chief of The Real News, Max Alvarez, says the mainstream media has finally taken an interest in covering this story, but the coverage is lacking on the workers' side. Alvarez broke down his organization's coverage of the long-brewing crisis in the rail industry, starting from when workers at BNSF were blocked from striking over what he called a, quote, draconian a new attendance policy, as you were highlighting, with workers on call 24-7. For Alvarez interviewing a longtime train dispatcher about how painful it's been to watch an industry he loved be destroyed by corporate greed. Now, according to CNBC, Dennis Pierce, the president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, said rail companies BNSF and Union Pacific rejected the union's proposal for sick time policy. 
BNSF, however, has rejected that claim and says it's, quote, categorically false. They say rail employees are provided with significant time off. So according to CNBC, Union Pacific says the company is in active discussions to address time off concerns. And in this Washington Post article, Dennis Pierce, the president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, said uh, they're not that far apart in the negotiations. So hopefully... Everybody meets in the middle, works out some a policy that is better for the workers than what they have currently because we do not want to see a strike. It's going to be horrible. Yeah, so one horrible. thing to, to keep an eye on is that, you know, I happen to have been in France over the summer when they were experiencing some transit strikes. And even though there was a lot of congestion on the road and it was very inconvenient to people in the country, everyone that I spoke to there had a kind of, well, good, I hope the workers get what they want kind of attitude. I see already Americans focusing a lot on the employer and not at all asking the question why the employer doesn't just concede to some of these demands if the situation is as dire as it's being described. So, for example, um, this, this is a description specifically of what the, the policies are like. Um, under the point, this points-based policy that began in February, BNSF workers are given 30 points for the rest of their careers and docked points anywhere from two to seven for days taken off outside of the already allocated vacation days. They can earn points back by working 14 days straight, but the total number of points they accrue can never exceed 30. These issues, plus the always-on-call nature of operating trains and railroad layoffs, have called many, caused many rail workers to leave the profession, amounting to to a 20% reduction in the workforce since 2019, compounding the issues. You have fewer people doing more work faster, and they're not allowed to have any sorts of breaks. So, so a spokesperson for the railroad says, you may have heard from labor they get no sick days or paid time off. This is false, she says unequivocally, and she says that... Well, that's not what this person is saying. They're not saying that they have no sick time or time off. And then, frankly, that sounds like a railroad employer doing what they often do, which is misrepresenting the claims of the workers in order to make themselves seem like they aren't actually engaged in coercive employment practices. So people can read, and I hope they do follow this story. The reason that we're pegged to Friday is because there has been a cooling off period. There's a 60-day cooling off period that, try, that is built into the law to try to prevent premature strikes. But that period ends Friday. And at that time, if they haven't worked out a solution to this contract negotiation, then it's likely that we're going to see some pretty significant disruptions. What? And look, to be clear, I don't have any issue with workers you know, w wanting better pay, better conditions, coming, organizing, coming together to, uh, to get employers to listen to their demands. Oftentimes they are reasonable. Um, my objection with labor unions is really confined. My like, sort of structural ideological objection is for public sector unions. But this is, these railroads are ultimately owned, I, I believe, right? I'm not, by, they're by, yeah. by private companies. That are, this one's owned by what Berkshire Hathaway is the parent and, company and of the, the parent money. company of the parent yeah. company. So you know what? Yeah, they, uh, they should, they, employees have every right to, um, to try to get better conditions. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're demanding a share of the profits that they create through their labor. So, for example, this it's worth pointing out that Union Pacific, the largest publicly traded U.S. railroad, paid investors more than $41 billion in dividends and share buybacks over five years through 2001, according to one Bloomberg analysis. And in the first six months of 2022, the company added another $5 billion to shareholder coffers. So employers are sitting here saying, where is all this profit coming from? I'm working my weekends to make sure the trains run on time. And I'm not seeing any of the benefits of my labor. I think this will be an interesting study for a lot of Americans who haven't been following union activity and who have seen a really declining labor force over the last 50 years. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this shakes out. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll have more rising right after this.
King Charles will not have to pay inheritance tax on the Duchy of Lancaster estate he inherited from the Queen due to a 1993 rule allowing assets to be passed from one sovereign to another. This is according to Insider. The Queen's private estate is worth more than $750 million. According to financial records, the Lancaster estate generated revenue of 24 million pounds or 27 million American dollars. Yes, let's convert this to American dollars. It's an American <laughs> show. Uh, the king is now entitled to its income. And you know what? Good for him, but I think the peasants should also not have to pay uh, inheritance tax, or as we call it in libertarian circles, death tax, the tax on dying. Not a tax I'm now, look, super enthusiastic about. It, it is an interesting contradiction from my perspective within the broadly conservative ideology that says that everyone should work for what they get, that, you know, people shouldn't get a free ride, there's no free lunch. But the expectation is that the children of people who are rich should be able to also be rich without any consequence whatsoever in terms of taxes and their broader contribution to the society that they live in and which they benefit from having a good infrastructure and being able to service their business objectives, right? So I don't know. I, 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 I obviously understand the idea of generational wealth. A lot of people from with a historical background, like my own families who weren't historically able to engage in some of the activities that allow you to create generational wealth, weren't allowed to buy houses in certain neighborhoods, were subject to redlining, don't have the same property wealth that has been passed down for generations, are very um, invested in real estate and some of these traditional means of processing and distributing generational wealth. But at the same time, I think that it's an endemic of a broader systemic issue where there are people to less extreme degrees than King Charles, who are able to, to aggregate huge sums of money that I think, frankly, come at the expense of workers mm -hmm. who aren't getting the fair benefit of their own labor. And then in the wealth tax, it might be an imperfect way to try to claw that back, but I think that's what's going on here. I would say that one of the main reasons people work hard, people try to earn a lot of money, is not just for themselves, but to provide a better life, an easier life uh, for their children. That was a you know major driver of immigrant desire to come to America, not just a better life for themselves, but for the families they want to have. So it always strikes me as a little uh, cruel to have the government come and confiscate a huge uh, sum of money from you when you're trying to leave it to your kids. It's also weird because it just kicks in if you die, but you can obviously yeah. find some ways of, there's many loophole type I mean, strategies to, I mean, that, and that is a significant problem that, to structure problem it. That and that will help rich and people. very wealthy people, right, know exactly how to set up those things. So they are truly passing on a lar much larger um, uh, percentage of their assets to their children yeah. because you can, I mean, in some ways you can just <laughs> yeah. write a bigger birthday check. Yeah, it's it's a, when it, you it's, die, it's when you die that yeah, it happens. I definitely agree. The, the problem with the, the biggest problem with the uh, inheritance tax is that only poor people are paying the inheritance right, tax. Right. Yep. Um, but the UK is projected to spend an estimated $9 million on Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Amid warnings, the country is headed toward a recession in skyrocketing costs of living. And surveys showing that over 2 million people in the UK cannot afford to eat. Mm. Mm, it seems as though King Charles got frustrated with a pin during the signing ceremony as well in Northern Ireland yesterday. Let's watch that. Oh God, in the wrong day. Yes, sir. It's only 12.30. Oh God, I hate this. Oh God, I hate this. It's only 12.30. Oh God, I hate this. It's only 12.30. Oh God, I hate this. 
See, I, I was definitely just uh, channeling Charles earlier on the show when I hurled a pen across this table in anger. Uh, pens are hard. Pens are hard. <laughs> King Charles has been on the job for less than a week and apparently is very frustrated with the volume of his duties here, the difficulty of his duties signing, signing that document. And people have been, I think, making fun of this clip and generally remarking on it, in part because there is this huge you know, gap, this dissonance between how much money he gets without having earned it and the fact that his duties are so limited and difficulty. Yeah, now is probably a good time to just abolish the monarchy, to be frank. Um, I, I know you have more mixed feelings about uh, Queen Elizabeth than I do, but there, he's not going to live up to her in terms of how like adored she was. And, and uh, also, he, can't, he also won't live up to my favorite English monarch by far, which is Charles II. Um, who uh, who uh, was restored to power after Oliver Cromwell was like done with that kind of interregnum there, and uh, is a great king who just loved theater and um, and dressing up as a peasant and having bastard oh, children with all his mistresses. Like that's a that's a king I can get behind. You know, there wasn't a lot of cruelty. He barely even hung drawn and quartered anyone. Like just like the literal people who executed his father, but almost no one else. All right, and he was secretly Catholic, well, look. like all monarchs should be. <laughs> My reasons for wanting to abolish the monarchy have um, a lot less to do with whether or not a particular monarch is likable and more to do with the fact that I think we should have democracies where people control uh, their own rule and that money isn't filtered to affluent people who sit around on golden crowns pontificating about how they have to have, uh, we have to work hard to help the people, just not by melting down uh, my chair. (laughs) (laughs) It would would seem like uh, uh, maybe they could have paid for, it's really true that the Queen's funeral was paid for in public. The state God, supports I mean, that's their crazy. entire lifestyle. It's crazy, yeah. We would. Uh, this is why we don't have a monarchy here. We would not. We, we, well, we because would not we also we fought a, stand for a, that, yes. a war not, uh, of independence, so that yeah. we wouldn't have a monarchy. I want to have, have another war of independence game. all over again. I'm so outraged by this <laughs> lavish display. Well, that's the thing, and we we got off easy compared to a lot of other colonial subjects in in the UK. So you know, I think that perhaps in the early days, the first few days after Queen Elizabeth's passing, there wasn't necessarily an openness to talking about her legacy and the legacy of the monarchy. But we're going to definitely continue to be having those conversations as people kind of put the mourning for the woman and the individual in the rearview mirror and start to talk about the institutional framework that Brits have held on to for mm-hmm. such a long time and people all over the Commonwealth still have her on our money and still have these, um, you know, kind of uh, legal and institutional ties to the crown. I, I think it can time. both be true that she was an inspiring figure to many people, a source of national strength, but also part of an institution that really does not make a lot of sense in the yeah, modern era. Yeah, definitely true. Should, both things are definitely you know. true. More Rising right after this. A sneak peek of one of 2023's most highly anticipated movies is here. That is, if you follow Disney Reboots. The teaser trailer for Disney's reimagining of The Little Mermaid was released last week by Walt Disney Studios. Let's watch.
woke propaganda every second of it. Somehow. Just kidding. Just kidding. Somehow, the live action adaptation of that 1989 Disney movie has caused a lot of controversy online. Critics have accused Disney of being too woke for making the movie's leading character black. Robbie, are mermaids white? <laughs> She's not authentically a fish. How dare they have this woke revisionist propaganda? No, I don't know that that many people were actually mad about it, though. Mm. I saw like some some anger. I guess I think far more people are mad that anyone would be mad than are actually mad. Maybe. Right? Look, let's 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 go through it. There was one person in particular who gave a put forward a clip. And uh, in which Ariel had been CGI edited to be white, and said, "Look, I can crowdfund and do the whole movie." Uh, I within mean, that a person's obviously a lunatic. Like, re-examine re your life choices if what you're doing <laughs> is is trying to turn a mermaid into white. You know, Pocahontas. Look, you said a lot of not a lot of people were that. We were blessed. talking before we did the segment about how much I don't like that movie, which is not for any particular reason. I just didn't like okay, it. Okay, but Robbie, Pocahontas was trending all of yesterday on Twitter because no people weren't talking about Elizabeth Warren. And people were talking about the idea that people of color would have been so upset if Pocahontas or Mulan were cast as white characters or right. non, you know, Japanese and and, and Native American right. characters. That is dumb. Those characters are are very deliberately part of a specific. They're historical figures. Right. They're, they're real whereas, people. Both both of them. Yeah. Um. So well, I, I mean, I guess you could uh, you could say that air, that the Little Mermaid tale is uh, what it's a Grimm's fairy tale. Mm -hmm. So it has a. Germanic origin, so should, I mean, uh, if, if people want to argue go. that there should be only Germans uh, playing the role, and that the original Disney movie was also a form of German erasure, hey, at least that's a consistent argument. But I was pretty amused by people who were pointing out um, the contradiction in other kind of humorous ways. There was one tweet in, in which someone argued, uh, Frank Lesser argued, the problem is that canonically Ariel's bottom half is cod, whereas in this new trailer she appears to be half mahi mahi. Yet example of the left woke anti-white fish agenda. Now I'm just getting hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan of Mahi Mahi. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, the better, more thoughtful criticism of this is just these, like, can't they make an original, I mean, they do make original movies, but is anyone calling for these live action reboots that aren't even, that, that are straining the kind of definition of live action? I mean, that was more true of, like, the Jungle Book or the Lion King one, where, like, we're not re re using real animals, we're not using real mermaids, <laughs> I don't know what's live about it, it's still a CGI thing. Um, yeah, look, I personally... And I, I didn't like either of those, by the way, I... I, I the original movies I love. The Jungle Book is by far my favorite Disney movie. Um, I love The Lion King too. The remakes were fine. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think they had the magic of the original films. I will probably think the same thing about this one. But well, not for woke reasons. Just... <laughs> I haven't watched any of the new reboots. Uh, I I have really enjoyed a lot of the original content that's been coming out. The Coco's. The um, What's the new one? We don't talk about Bruno. Like all of those, I think are yeah. like very good. Uh, Moana, love Moana. Moana, terrific. Love Moana. Was hitting doing they elliptical to some of those songs last night. But the the reality is that people do have kids and they want to really live, live yeah. this with their kids, and it is a way to refresh it. I love the 1989 classic. I was four years old and the perfect age for that. It was my go to um, my go to movie, and I do think we sh we should also balance our conversation with pointing out that a lot of folks were posting 
very positive videos of their kids watching this and experiencing the magic that we experienced for the very but first let's not, time. But let's not erase the frog, uh, the princess and the frog. That's a good one. That's that was of good. I mean, pioneering African-American uh, character, cartoon I, voices, etc. I really enjoy the that one's really the good. Frog. Underrated. The problem with the Highly princess underrated. and the frog, and I, I agree with this criticism, is that she was a frog for way too much of the movie. Mm. And after waiting for what what was I like in law school when that movie came out? After waiting twenty odd years for a black Disney princess. It was a little frustrating to get all of like seven minutes runtime with her in a human body. Isn't he the frog? Doesn't he get turned into They're the frog? They're both frogs. They're both frogs. She kisses That's him right. in the beginning and they go on a whole frog adventure together. And the one scene where she has her big kind of, you know, every every lead has their big song, a part of your world, you know, I, uh, the Aladdin one, uh, also a part of your world, I feel like it's called. Uh, I can show you I the world. I can show you the world. <laughs> Um, her Shining, big, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll do duets at some point okay. on the show. <laughs> but during that song also, she was a human, but they did this kind of stylized animation, which is fun mm -hmm. if it's not the only time you get to see her sing as a human in the entire movie. You really want to see that Disney princess look and have that big feature number. So for many people, not just black people, but I think a lot of little girls are really going to enjoy this for a lot of different kinds yeah, of it was more, And boys as well. It was great. But there was a lot of covers that made it sound like this was literally the first time there's been a black person in a Disney production. I'm like, no, no. I, I don't think that that's what the implications, I, I didn't see any covers that suggested that, but I, I did see other people pointing out that in other instances, when there is a hiring situation where a white person is cast and there are objections, the kind of responses that you get are, well, maybe this was the most qualified person, yada, yada. And I will say, I do think that um, Halle Bailey, um, you know, she is a singing pair with her sister, Chloe and Halle. I think they're immeasurably talented. And I've been really enjoying watching their career after they were discovered, I think, on the internet by Beyonce like 10, year, 10 plus years ago as little tiny girls. And I think that no one can really question the vocal talent here. We'll see if she has acting chops. I've never really seen her in that capacity. How do you feel about Melissa McCarthy as Ursula? <gasps> Is that real? Yeah. I yeah. love it. So actually, people, some people were upset about that because the Ursula character is, you know, an homage to a certain kind of drag performance yeah. person. And yeah, but it, Melissa the McCarthy Disney is obviously wasn't, not. Wasn't voiced by a drag artist. Were they not? It was based on a woman that just passed away recently, actually. Right. I'm right. sorry. But the, the way me. she looked was drag inspired or something. Sure, like and, that. you know, everybody can I don't, do drag. I don't know how they're doing Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> everybody can do drag. I, I mean, sure. I love Melissa McCarthy. I think she's really funny and talented, so. Some interesting. I'm just looking. I'm just on the Wikipedia page now for the casting. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, uh, well, well, well Rob, Robbie reads the Wikipedia page for the Little Mermaid movie. Uh, we'll let you go, um, but stick around. We'll have more rising right after this. We are inching ever closer to election night in November and wanted to give an update. Democrats are hoping to hold on to control of the Senate, obviously, and as the final primary elections of the 2022 season wrapped up yesterday, all eyes were on New Hampshire. The state held three different Republican primaries, including a closely watched Senate primary, where the winner will go up against Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan. And the results, Brianna? Well, State Senate President Chuck Morris has conceded to retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Don Bolduck. Bolduck has 37% of the vote, while Morris has 36%, with 89% of the votes counted. That's according to AP and Decision Desk HQ. Bolduck has said he stands by signing a letter along with other military officials saying Donald Trump won the 2020 election, which Trump unequivocally did not, and also raised the possibility of abolishing the FBI. Hmm. 
In New Hampshire's first congressional district, Caroline Levitt became the second Gen Zer to win their primary election. The former Trump White House aide beat Matt Mowers, who was backed by GOP House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Levitt is another candidate who has embraced Trump's false claim that the election was rigged. The uh, so so this is the same old story right now for the GOP, where they are. Um, having candidates win these primaries mm -hmm. who are the most conservative or most not it's I mean conservative doesn't even mean that anymore the most Trump loving the most MAGA mm -hmm. candidates who will not fare well enough in general in the general election I mean this is just the story in this was the story in Arizona it might be the story in Georgia it could even be the story in Ohio although I, I do think there JD Vance will pull it out the mm -hmm. Arizona uh, candidate Blake Masters many of the Arizona candidates their governor their gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake these are all people who leaned hard into the Trump election claims which which is toxic for independent voters, de Democrats who might be willing to vote for a GOP candidate because of the economy or school issues or something like that. Even even many Republican voters just don't, you know, they don't want to hear it. From, they, like, these are not the issues that matter to them. Relitigating the 2020 election is not the issue. It's not something that matters to most Republican voters. That's not what they care about. We saw that in the Senate um, runoff uh, elections in Georgia right after 2020, where the distraction provided by Donald Trump allowed uh, the Democratic candidates to prevail, that's going to be the story again. I, I think it's very, very unlikely that Republicans take control of the Senate, and it's largely candidate-driven. They, it, well, there's other stuff in the mix, too, but with, with different candidates, these, some of these races would have been winnable. Does Biden have a, have a point, then, when he gives a speech distinguishing MAGA Republicans from the, the rest of the party? Certainly in terms of the candidates, absolutely. Mm. In terms of the candidates, there are pretty stark divisions in the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of these candidates, like, hate Mitch McConnell, hate, hate GOP leadership, hate, you know, et cetera, um, and, and court Trump's favor and, and want the support and the endorsement of the most vocally pro-Trump wing. But that's not everyone. That's, uh, that's a small—and, you know, actually, Republicans have had this issue before. I don't know if this phenomenon is as prevalent on the Democratic side. But, you know, going back to election cycles in, I think, in, what, in 2010, in 2012, you had cases of, uh, of what seemed like winnable Senate races where a more fringe Republican candidate prevailed in a primary and then put that race out of contention. Mm. So this is a tale as old as time. Uh, Republican primary voters— will just often back um, the most the, the most far right or most right leaning person, mm -hmm. and uh, it's not. Look, you got to got to be tactical, guys. Even if you want, you know, you're really passionate about having that policy vision implemented. Many of these states are just not. You know, this isn't Kansas. This isn't. Yeah, it's, I'm used to thinking of the Republicans as more strategic than the Democrats, but it looks like the tables are turning a little bit. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, top Democrats are confident the Dems will not only hold on to their thin majority but also pick up additional seats. According to Punchbowl News, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi cited the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, along with a slew of legislative wins, uh, as having swung the political edge in their favor. Despite the Democratic leadership's positive outlook, the fact does remain that President Biden's approval numbers still dwell in the low 40s and inflation, along with price increases, plague Americans' bank accounts. But let's take a step back altogether. So the New York Times' Nate Cohen is sounding the alarm when it comes to polling for this year's midterm. After the mishaps in 2016-2020, Cohen writes, Democratic Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same places 
where the polls overestimated Mr. Biden in 2020 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Right now, the 538 forecast has the Democrats favored to win the Senate while Republicans are favored to win the House. Cohen explains that if the polls are just as wrong as they were in 2020, forecasting for both chambers would look much more competitive, writing the apparent Democratic edge in Senate races in Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Ohio would evaporate. To take the chamber, Republicans would need any two of Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, or Pennsylvania with Democrats today well ahead in Pennsylvania and Arizona, the fight for control of the chamber would come down to very close races in Nevada and Georgia. Uh -huh. And the we were talking um, during the break about the Pennsylvania race, uh -huh. which is interesting because it did not at all seem, you would not think it was winnable for Republicans, uh -huh. given that they had nominated Dr. Oz, who frankly is not a candidate that excites really anyone in the uh -huh. Republican coalition. He is neither a, a, a sincere populist or Trump Person, he, he, he has no sincerity about mm -hmm, him, mm -hmm. nor is he really pleasing to the Republican establishment or more Republican voters. He's just he's just a guy. He's just a celebrity a figure, bagger, absolute Oprah carpet Adelaide, bagger. Yeah. Makes no one happy. And John Fetterman, I I saw early on the strength of his candidacy. He has a lot of sincerity to the, his populist he's vibes, his working state, class vibes. Governor, yeah. but. He had this really crippling medical problem, and I am sorry, but it, it hit the the clips of him giving even short speeches are rough. He is in bad shape. He cannot speak. He it's bad. Yeah. It's real bad. So I listened to he did an extended interview on Pod Save America earlier this week that I listened to and was frankly kind of surprised by how you know stuttering it was. Now, like it 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 seemed like what you would expect of a lot of normal people who aren't especially articulate. I don't want to say that I would have heard the speech in a vacuum and said, oh, there's something cognitively impaired about that person or anything like that. And I'm not that familiar with how fluid his speech was before the show. It was fine. We had we interviewed him on the show uh, like a year ago uh, when Ryan and I did mm -hmm. it, I think, uh, maybe Kim. And uh, he sounded, it's night and day compared to how well, he sounds it, now. It, it did sound rather halting and it felt almost in, you know, unfair or cruel in some ways for the for the pod safe hosts who are obviously rooting for him to have him in that context. And you know, maybe I'm reading into it, but it I, it did feel like a bit of a tense conversation because I don't know if you and they were prepared for how atypical he sounded in that context. At the same time, I think there are a lot of people in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania who would happily vote for him completely bedridden and able to do anything, you drew an analogy to Dianne Feinstein, who has been widely reported to be very much not with it for some time now. And I think a lot of folks would rather have a working class, you know, uh, mm -hmm. local staff that is with them on the issues that are running a campaign or administration than having someone like Dr. Oz, which seems to, who seems to not really have a clue at all. If I were uh, Fetterman's advisors, I would agree to zero debates. Mm -hmm. I would not have him make any more public appear, maybe appearances and not say anything. It, it's. It, 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 there's no way it doesn't give some voters pause, uh, well, which might, which still might be, again, because Dr. Oz is such a bad candidate, the conditions were favorable for uh, Democrats in Pennsylvania anyway. I, my guess is that he will limp over the finish line, but uh, it's, 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 it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, bad luck for Democrats, certainly, yeah. that, well, that look, happened. The, the debate is happening, and we'll find out one way or the other what right, happens. Right, he did agree to one debate. Yeah. Yeah, that was tactically not smart.
they should have agreed to zero debates. Yeah. But tomorrow on Rising, we'll be discussing our predictions for the upcoming episodes of House of the Dragon. <laughs> uh, that we should do a whole House of the Dragon show uh, where I try not to spoil Brianna because I'm familiar with the source material and I do know of what's going to happen. Of course you are, Robbie. Uh, but no, just kidding. We'll continue to cover uh, all the political maneuverings this side of King's Land. Yeah, not in Westeros. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And you can also catch us on the Plex TV app. All right, take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody.